Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. It was really great. We had a lovely time and they looked after us very nicely. So, John, what did we do? What was the highlight of our trip? Without doubt, the highlight of our trip, given that I was um, I was prevented from consuming the, the local shellfish, the Orma, which um, which you can only catch on when certain spring tides are coming in, the Ormering tides, and we'd missed it, was we went to Victor Hugo's house. Victor Hugo was in exile on Guernsey for how many years? Uh, 15 years. And he wrote, he finished Les Mis when he was there. And he also wrote a book sort of set in and around Guernsey, The Toilers of the Sea, which I've now bought a copy of. And Have not you? in French, but I am going to read it. I got Guernseyed up when I was there. You I did? Just, I can confirm that, yeah. Um, <laughs> he looks quite sarny in it. If you were wearing a Guernsey. Have you ever been to Channel Islands? Yeah, my, actually, my best friend Faye lives in Guernsey. Does she? Ah, oh, okay. <laughs> so I was, I was hoping that there would be still people speaking Patois there. I think it's only the old people, really, because because of the war, the children were all evacuated. So it's obviously occupied by the Nazis. Ready to go? Good. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us on the outskirts of Cincinnati in the years after the Civil War. The snow is falling heavily as we stand on Bluestone Road, staring at number 124, a house apart a house with secrets, a house with ghosts. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today is Preeti Taneja. Hi. Hello. Hi, hi Preeti. <laughs> uh, Preeti is a novelist and teacher in prisons and in universities. Her novel, We That Are Young, which we loved on Backlisted, we did. published by the excellent Galley Beggar Press, won the 2018 Desmond Elliott Prize for the best debut of the year. It was also shortlisted for the Republic of Consciousness Prize and the Books in My Bag Reader's Choice Awards and longlisted for the Jalak Prize, the Folio Prize and for Europe's most prestigious award for a work of world literature, the Prix Jean Mikalski. It has been translated into seven languages to date. Are there more in the offing? I hope so. And there's another um, award which I w- was very proud to be um, listed for in India called the Shakti Bhatt 
first book award, which is given in honor of a young woman who died um, called Shakti. But, and, um, you know, it's amazing to be recognized in all of these different ways by people in different parts you, of the world. Did you expect, because did, didn't this book take several years to write? Uh, well, it took a long time to write. It took like three or four years to write, but it took um, about the same amount of time to find a home. Yeah, okay. So the seven years is made up of the, the the writing struggle and then the and then the publishing struggle. And would I be right in thinking you weren't sitting around going, well, it'll be fine because I'm going to win all these prizes when it comes out? You would be right. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that. But it's, it's a great publishing story. If, I mean, you know, we love Galley Gally Beggar and what they do and they've published the book, I think, they've published the book brilliantly in the UK. But, um, but it's also published by Knopf. In, in the US, which is like, is the <laughs> there is no higher rung on the publishing tree. It's an extraordinary you... thing, yeah, to go from um, the world of small press publishing into the world of elite top <laughs> flight. Yes, it's been an extraordinary experience for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, the great Sonny Mesha, who is still is still at Knopf, but that is that, that is publishing. You know, it takes you a while to find a publisher. You then, as you say, work with small presses, and then you the, the book suddenly bursts onto the onto the scene and wins prizes gets amazing reviews and then the foreign deals fall into place yeah I mean it all happened in slightly um roundabout jigsaw puzzle way with me um I think the book sold to Knopf before the the Desmond Elliott prize they they bought it in um August September October it was in conversation sort of short very shortly after it came out in the UK um Sonny bought it himself for Knopf and I had the opportunity to work with him which has been so incredible so and it's also so uh We That Are Young is going to be a soon be a tv series right that's, <laughs> that's true that's what they say yeah okay <laughs> and you and also you're published by Knopf which means that you didn't want me to say this but let's state the facts you share a publisher with Toni Morrison it is true <laughs> and it feels <laughs> Like a full circle in many ways, because Sonny was actually an editor at Picador back in the day mm. um, in the UK when I first read Beloved at school. <gasps> so I think he had a hand in bringing Tony Morrison to Hugely. to bear in the UK, and that and that book Beloved was on the school curriculum when I was doing my A levels. So that's how it came into my life. And it just soldered itself. The language just soldered itself into me like DNA because I I was taught it very well. And and years later, obviously, decades later, basically, when I met Sonny, it, I just wanted to thank him for that moment. Mm. Um, and maybe something about what he likes in a book resonated um, through mine, I hope, because... I think you are what you read in many ways. You are made up of all yes, of these different yeah. books. We'll, we'll, we believe that, well, that one here. That, we'll, we'll, come, we'll come on to that in relation to the book we're going to be talking about <laughs> and its relationship to other books, but we're not quite there yet. So, uh. Great. Well, you might have guessed <laughs> that the book that uh, Pretty is here to talk to us today about is Beloved by Toni Morrison, first published in 1987 by Knopf, uh, Sonny Mesa. And which went to on to win the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1988, among many other prizes, and was controversially shortlisted but didn't win the National Book Award in 1997. But in 2006, the New York Times declared Beloved the best work of American fiction of the previous 10 years. 
Now, we just want to say to everyone listening that our starting point for talking about both Beloved and Toni Morrison is is this, <laughs> that we all believe that Beloved is one of the greatest novels of the 20th century and that Toni Morrison is the greatest living American writer. And we believe it so strongly, it's not even an opinion. No. <laughs> you know, it's the starting, it's going to be the starting point of this discussion. So we're not going to be sitting here going, oh, is she as good as Don DeLillo? It doesn't matter. The book is important. She is incredibly important. I feel both honoured and intimidated yeah. about having to talk about this particular book. But I'm so pleased that we decided to do it with you, Pretty, because it's just a masterpiece yeah. this novel yes it absolutely is and you know that feeling of being awed and intimidated is exactly right but at the same time she draws you in to a sense of um bliss almost with the way she uses language and the way she constructs a sentence and the things that she can bury within that it's like falling in love to yeah. read this book yeah. Well, keep listening, everyone. Uh, <laughs> but so first, but first, John, what have you been reading this um, week? I've been reading a really lovely collection of stories by a writer called Lisa Blower, uh, who is from Stoke, and it's called "It's Gone Dark Over Bill's Mothers," which is a. a in fact, I'll put, I'm going to read you a little bit, which puts it in context. It is a collection of short pieces. If you can think of a sort of Alan Bennett monologues in a lot of ways, they're, they're really wonderfully funny, wise. A lot of them are set in the 1980s. I think they were written over a period of 10 years. Lisa Blower is featured in the anthology of working class writers that a man have just published, Common, Common People, edited by Kit Duvall. And she was one of the writers that uh, that really stood out for me. Uh, she's, she's published by Myriad Press. This is another excellent bit of small press publishing and if you're interested in you know fish paste sandwiches and, and going on holiday and, and the you know your your legs sticking to the back of your, your you know the, your 1970s car or uh, those, are, those are all my interests one of the stories i love in this book there's a, a story called drive in 17 in 17 views where it's 17 different uh, um, very short pieces about driving in cars from there is a wonderful lovers uh, professor having an affair with a student which is brilliantly done. None of this is complicated or challenging, but she writes with a with a, a, a precision and a and a humour. The great stories are always about what isn't included as well as what's in there. And she's she's actually, I think, a, a master of the form. And I, I just really, I, I raced through it. Really, really enjoyed it. Hugely recommend it. I'm going to read you a little bit, which is from a, a story called Potluck, which is about a it's about a, a classic sort of cafe i'll try not to i hope i get my kind of slightly kind of midlandsy accent right for it because it is a monologue it is very much in that alan bennett what can i get you duck sausage egg cup of tea don't worry you're here now so you can stop looking at the floor i welcome all lids that don't fit and spouts that don't pour who told you about me i thought you looked familiar like i know you who's your mother does she live on Warrington road it's the eyes you see I never forget a pair of eyes. And you've got big eyes, Duck. They give you they give you away. I hope you don't mind me saying that. My eyes like yours are sad stories. You'll tell them whether you like it or not. Now come on and get warm. That's it. You need some sugar in that tea, your skin and bone. I haven't got any. Food bank was that busy last week. You forgot what you need. Do I not get to choose? Can I get some of that? What am I supposed to do with kidney beans? 
uh, from number nine, chinning on about the veg again. I'd rather it frozen if you've got it, Duck. Those carrots last month went black. I said to her, next time you chuck stuff out, chuck them to me. I can make meals out of onions. She says, well, give us a fiver then, I'll see what's on the turn. Of course, some faces don't want you to see them. Make out like they don't know you when they sat on it aside you at school. Others turn up with a couple of shopping trucks, next door's baby and bare-faced cheek. It's like there's a war on, rationing all over again. My mother would say, if there's a men in the world, there'll always be wars. And my father would go, Hester, as long as there's woman, there'll be men. And don't forget that it only took one woman to bring down a lifetime of men. And off he'd go again. There was a time when you couldn't eat a meal in any decency without the potters from Stoke, proud of every dinner table we were till those slow boats from China promised cheap, cheap, cheap. Can't grow a bloody teapot for toffee anymore. 4,000 kins gone later, and it's gone that dark over Bill's mother's as you realise just how much daylight those kilns let in. There you go. <laughs> it's, just, it's just lovely. Um, who's it, Lisa, pub- who's Lisa, it published uh, by, published please? Published by Myriad Editions, um, and it's gone dark over Bill's mother's. Andy, what have you been reading? Well, when we went on our Guernsey mini break, I <laughs> felt like I was on holiday, although we were working. I'm working hard. But I did feel like I was on holiday. It was really exciting to be back in Guernsey. And so I thought what I wanted to read was something that would be uh, a contrast to the book that we were there to discuss and also with Tony Morrison, who I was reading in preparation for this episode. And so I chose a book that was published last year and which has just come out in paperback by Porrick O'Donnell called The House on Vesper Sands. Now, do you know anything about this novel, John? No. Right. It's set in the winter of 1893. And as it starts, you are unclear what is going on. What you know is that a seamstress has been invited into a house in Mayfair that something isn't right that she has stitched something into her own skin and that before the chapter is out, spoilers on the first chapter, she's committed suicide. Crikey. And this, this book had got me within about six pages, really. You know, I'm often on this podcast, I'm grumping away about things having too much plot I have a slightly queasy relationship with how I feel about plot. This has got just the right amount of plot. (laughs) You can put that on the cover. (laughs) The House on Vesper Sands has just the right amount of plot. I thought it was absolutely wonderful. A fantastic mixture of a detective novel and a ghost story and a horror fiction. And it seemed to me very consciously that Porek O'Donnell is bringing in Wilkie Collins and Dickens and Conan Doyle, not just in Sherlock Holmes. I'm going to read a bit in a minute with a detective, but also Conan Doyle's interest in the paranormal, in spiritualism, is reflected in this book. It reminded me of The Woman in Black by Susan Hill. It reminded me of the TV series Ripper Street, John. I don't know if you... Yeah, I know. Right? So it has that really... It's got that real energy, and it's sort of Victorian Baroque but it's thrilling and stylish and it's also really funny. It has some really wonderful set pieces. And then he manages to do that thing that I think lots of people trying to write this kind of novel would like to do, but perhaps is is more challenging than one might think, that he's able to shift gear from the modes of storytelling 
quite brilliantly, I must say, that you go from something which is making you laugh and then two pages later you're utterly horrified by what you're being presented with. And really, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. It and never goes where you think it's going to go. It Edwardian, is it kind of that Victorian? Victorian. So, so here's a little bit. This is a discussion between Inspector Cutter and a servant in the house where the seamstress has committed suicide. He is called Carew. But first we hear from Inspector Cutter. Inspector Cutter says, Now, will you be an obliging fellow and show us to the particular room in the upper part of the house where this misfortune occurred? It was a room, I take it, and not a chimney or a nest in the eaves. Very good, Inspector, but I hope you will refrain from any further levity, for you find us all greatly saddened at what has occurred. Levity? Inspector Cutter's face darkened, and he clamped his hand for a moment over his jaw. For an instant, Gideon imagined that some predatory creature lurked within him and might burst from him at any moment like an unhooded hawk from its perch. Levity, will you tell me, Carew, do you keep an eye to the newspapers at all? On occasion, sir, as my duties permit. Did you ever read of the case of the children of Dr St John? The slaughter of the St Johns? (laughs) Carew's eyes widened, but he checked himself almost at once. I believe I saw some mention of it. And do you recall how many children the St. John's had and what their ages were? Not to an exactness, Inspector. I would not have had the leisure to... Five. There were five St. John children. The eldest was Anthony, a boy of 13, and the youngest was Matilda. Matilda was a babe of 15 months and was still nursed at the time of her death. Do you know how it is that I come to know that? No, No, Inspector, how could I? You could not and I will do you the kindness of keeping it from you, for I assure you it is a thing that would never leave you. But I will tell you this much. I know their names and their ages. I know the colour of each one's hair, and I could give you a litany of every scrap of clothing that was on them. It was I who made the photographic plates that were shown to the jurors, since the Frenchmen we depend upon in the normal course would come no further than the head of the stairs. Did you know, Carew, that the adult teeth of a small child are formed in her jaw long before the milk teeth are lost? I did not, Inspector. Yes, it's a remarkable thing. They are hidden away until they are called for in a tiny and perfect array. The workings of nature are a puzzle, and I suppose I have been fortunate to have glimpsed them as others have not. But you may be certain of this much, Carew. If I had any great store of merriment when I went into that house... And I suspect I had not, if the truth be known. Then it was gone from me entirely when I came out, and it has never troubled me again. <laughs> so I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. That's out in paperback. Many of you might be able to have a holiday this year. If you do, I strongly recommend The House on Vesper Sands. Now, here are our sponsors telling you what to do. No matter what you're looking for in a non-alcoholic beer, there's only one name that has it all. Athletic Brewing Co. Full flavor? It's athletic. Huge variety? It's athletic. Award-winning styles you can get online, at the bar, or the grocery store? It's athletic. In fact, when it comes to amazing non-alcoholic beer, there's no question. It's athletic. Ask for it and find out. Go to askforathletic.com to find your closest retailer today. Near Beer. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? 
Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Is there such a thing as a traveler? Not a Delta. Because we know on one flight, Mike in 8C prefers reality TV to reality. So we provide more than 1,000 hours of in-flight entertainment. While on the flight after, 8C is occupied by Jen, whose favorite snack is tea. That's why we provide fast, free Delta Sync Wi-Fi available for SkyMiles members. Because at Delta, we know. Refill? Everyone flies their own way. Delta. Keep climbing. Free Wi-Fi available on most domestic flights. Terms of use apply. Now we have to move uh, on to the main event, which is Beloved by Toni Morrison. I thought maybe we would hear from Toni Morrison herself. We're going to hear from her a few times, but I thought maybe she could read to us. This is from about 50 pages into the novel, and it's where the character of Beloved makes her first appearance. A fully dressed woman walked out of the water. She barely gained the dry bank of the stream before she sat down and leaned against a mulberry tree. All day and all night she sat there, her head resting on the trunk in a position abandoned enough to crack the brim in her straw hat. Everything hurt, but her lungs most of all. Sopping wet and breathing shallow, she spent those hours trying to negotiate the weight of her eyelids. The day breeze blew her dress dry. The night wind wrinkled it. Nobody saw her emerge or came accidentally by. If they had, chances are they would have hesitated before approaching her, not because she was wet or dozing or had what sounded like asthma, but because amid all that, she was smiling. It took her the whole of the next morning to lift herself from the ground and make her way through the woods, past a giant temple of boxwood, to the field, and then the yard of the slate gray house. Exhausted again, she sat down on the first handy place, a stump not far from the steps of 124. By then, keeping her eyes open was less of an effort. She could manage it for a full two minutes or more. Her neck, its circumference no wider than a parlor service saucer, kept bending, and her chin brushed the bit of lace edging her dress. Precy. <laughs> I mean, we're all sitting here slightly stunned by actually hearing that read aloud. What are the qualities of Toni Morrison's prose that you can hear just in that one paragraph? Well, when I listen to that paragraph, I'm listening for all of the things that make her work and her sentences and her language so exciting. And, you know, what she's doing there is she's compressing language and distilling language to multiple meanings in every sentence. So when you have this idea of um, the trunk, then you're thinking not just about the tree trunk, but you're thinking about the body, the part of the body that we call the trunk. So then you imagine that this young woman 
with this huge effort, drags herself to this house, this mysterious young woman. She sits down on the first thing she sees, and it's a tree stump. So that part of her body, which is the trunk, actually becomes the next part of the tree. And it's done so carefully and so easily and so beautifully that it just happens at the back of your brain. As a reader, you just take that in and you just realize that somehow this is a writer who can evoke how much the how much the human world and the natural world just fu- are fused together. Then there's also this idea that this trunk has been, that she's sitting on a stump, a, a cut tree. Mm. And that is just exactly what her own story is. I don't want to ruin it for readers who haven't read the book, but it's a ghost story. And this young woman has has had a violence done to her, which she's grown out of into this ghost, which has to do with axes and cuttings. And, of course, the tree is very resonant in the context of this novel. It's a slavery novel. It's a place where a tree can be both the site of a great and awful violence against black bodies, where bodies hang, and it can also be something very sheltering. And that idea of the tree and reclaiming the shelter of the tree, becoming something that takes nurture, um, is, is part of this book. It's ingrained in this book. So it's got a lot of layers of meaning. Um, Toni Morrison never, ever strays from connecting the body through its experiences, what she shows us to material objects either so when she talks about this neck as the mm. size of a saucer mm, yeah. we're in the parlor mm. yeah. with something balancing really gently and there's such dread in the idea of the axe and this trembling neck and it's all there in that tiny paragraph that we just heard her read i first read this novel in 2006 and i read it as one of the books for for my book the year of reading dangerously and I can remember reading that specific paragraph, which is one of the reasons why we heard it there, thinking how, in a way, Preeti, you've just <laughs> explained it brilliantly. <laughs> that was how brutal. is she doing yeah. that? How is she marrying lyricism and horror? Which one of those things is making the hairs on the back of my neck stand up on end? Is it both at the same time? It probably is. And one of the things I think about, beloved specifically, and I suppose Toni Morrison's writing in general, Mm. is that she manages through craft and genius... (laughs) to create a voice out of several things that shouldn't work together, that she makes work together? I think one of the most important things that she does is she remembers how naming can be subversive, you know, and in every way that she gives us um, an idea of something, she uses that idea to, to find the uncanny in its own self. Yeah. So so when we re- hear that paragraph, we hear that, it's not because this young woman looks sleepy or she's dozing. It's not because she's pale or she's wet. It's because she's smiling. smiling. Yeah. And the smile is that thing that brings the horror to that paragraph because we are trained socially to think of a smile as welcoming. Yeah. It's something that we want to be part of, this shared joy, but it's, it's, it's 
intensely private. It's a smile that's saying, I know more than you and I'm coming to get you and mm. make sure you know it too. And there is no escape from that. And by you, you we also mean the reader, right? Yeah, we do. You know, this idea that she puts into this about lungs as well, I think is really important. Yeah. It, the pain in her lungs is the worst pain of all. And so I'm thinking when I'm hearing that is, oh, it's because she's been gasping for breath. Because she's trying to tell this story that is just submerged under layers and yeah. layers of history and silencing and censorship. And, you know, this is a kind of metaphor for the whole book, really. Yeah. I mean, that passage captures it beautifully. The simplest scenes are, as you say, these multi-layered. So you, the book never relaxes in a way. You can't read this book. You simply cannot read this book quickly. I've read a lot of criticism of it, which is people haven't liked the beloved character because they think it's too supernatural. And then I've read other criticisms saying, oh, no, it's perfectly possible that this is just a case of mistaken identity. That doesn't seem to me to be what <laughs> the, what she's doing is, is, is creating that space, that charged space where you, you, you can't choose because she's not letting you choose because she's making both possibilities simultaneously happen. It's both, as you say, it's both the horror but also the, the, the sense of... That, that, that feeling that you have towards Beloved of wanting to wanting to love her and wanting to mother her and wanting to... is at the same time, you know... I'm going to read the blurb... Oh, yeah. ...from the back of the film tie-in edition. Oh, no. <laughs> the, the film but it was, might be the same have, as you've got I there. I have seen the film. Was the film the one with Oprah Winfrey in it? Yeah. It is. Jonathan Demme. It's Jonathan Demme film. It is the mid-1800s at Sweet Home in Kentucky... An era is ending as slavery comes under attack from the abolitionists. The worlds of Halley and Paul D are to be destroyed in a cataclysm of torment and agony. The world of Sether, however, is to turn from one of love to one of violence and death. The death of Sether's baby daughter, Beloved, whose name is the single word on the tombstone, who died at her mother's hands and who will return to claim retribution. Wow. <laughs> don't know who wrote that but i've got a few things to say <laughs> it actually says whose name is the single world on the tombstone really so it's not even been copy edited properly can i say that's a three and a half to four out of ten blurb we're not allowed to swear on this are we of course we can yeah. no, to say it was fucking awful <laughs> <laughs> oh dear but i mean just going back to this idea of reversals the reversal she affects very yeah. easily through language Sweet Home is this um, slave <laughs> plantation that the that the characters in this novel have are fl have fled, and we catch up with them, you know, decades later, when um, they've they've all had more trauma in their lives. But obviously, as Paul D says, it wasn't sweet, and it certainly wasn't home. Mm. So all the time, in every way, she's subverting these ideas of what we think, and of course, the the idea of the sweetness absolutely connects to sugar which is the great colonial yep. slave product. So, which, you know, could not have happened without slave ships. The slave ship, which is the Brooks that was from, you know, that if, you, if, you have, if you've seen that impressive cross-section, yeah. horrific cross-section of the slave ship, the Brooks, yeah. very famous, um, just sails through this text all the way, like a haunting. It's a history of place and haunting and time and haunting and bodies um, that have already suffered traumatic violence. It's not the abolitionists. That... Here's a clip of Toni Morrison talking about, well, most of these clips are taken from an amazing 1992 interview 
that she did with Charlie Rose for when jazz came out, mm. her novel jazz. And and this is a this is a clip about how it was to to write about slavery and the slave trade. Well, the slavery stuff yeah. was terrible because it's not it's one thing to sort of know historically, abstractly, conceptually, generally what it was like, but imagining that life, which is sort of entering it very fundamentally, is very, very difficult for me. And the only thing that made it really possible to stay there, you know, was just little things, just knowing that you couldn't see your husband in the daytime, only at night, only when the sun was dark, because people worked from sunup to sundown. The only thing that made it really possible for me was thinking, well, I didn't have to do it. I just had to imagine it. So I can't be too self-regarding and precious about all that. If they could do it, I could write about it. I mean, I could get tough enough. You, Preeti, you've brought a book with you by Toni Morrison. She was talking about, I can't be too self-regarding. And uh, <laughs> you've brought a book called The Source of Self-Regard, which is the US title for a book that's available in the UK as... A Mouthful of Blood. Right. Yeah, so this is the newest um, edition of a selected essay, Speeches and Meditations, um, that Toni Morrison has made. And um, there's a few paragraphs in this, which I have as a sort of writing manifesto for myself in, in many ways. Um, I think it's important for me to say that why Beloved meant so much to me, not just because of the brilliance of the language, but because it reversed the gaze. I grew up in a very... Um, in, a, in a small town, on the white side of a small town that had an Indian population, but it was on the other side of town. And there's a class aspect to that. It was like a lower middle class um, new build estate where I grew up. In a, and then on the other side, there was um, the, the, the working class Indian. But when I was at school, I was very much a minority. And to read this book was like having permission to realize there was another side to myself. Because... It was the nearest access one had to thinking about how you could claim your own story. Mm. It is so powerful because part of the message of the book is that um, this language can allow for critique of racial difference. It must make a critique of racial difference. And so here is Toni Morrison talking about some of those things. Um, it's from a chapter called The Trouble with Paradise. I want to begin my meditation on the trouble with paradise with some remarks on the environment in which I work and in which many writers also work. The construction of race and its hierarchy have a powerful impact on expressive language, just as figurative interpretive language impacts powerfully on the construction of a racial society. The intimate exchange between the atmosphere of racism and the language that asserts, erases, manipulates or transforms, it is, un it is unavoidable among fiction writers who must manage to hold an unblinking gaze into the realm of difference. And so it's that unblinking gaze that can be done so lyrically in this book, which really is just something that one aspires to as a writer. I think one of the things that is interesting about Toni Morrison as a writer and novelist, about Beloved as well, uh, picking up on what you were saying there, is the way that her project is attempting to reverse that gaze 
while engaging with the literary canon at the same time, right? Yeah, it's very exciting. I mean, for me, yeah. this is an absolutely <laughs> modernist book. Yeah. And it's modernist because it uses, um, it's sort of experimental in that sort of... It's like reverse Faulkner. I, I love it. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's got many voices in it. Yeah. It's got It's got sort of poetic figurative language yeah. it, it is not something that you can categorize as a post-colonial novel or a slavery novel it belongs in a canon of modernism because modernism was a global movement and this is absolutely part of that great point really i've got the the last the ending of a.s byatt's review when this novel was published uh, in the uk a.s byatt reviewed it and um she said uh she describes it as uh, um she says, this novel gave me nightmares, and yet I sat up late, paradoxically smiling to myself with intense pleasure at the exact beauty of the singing prose. It's an American masterpiece, and one which, moreover, in a curious way, reassesses all the major novels of the time in which it is set. <laughs> and that's true, yeah, yeah. right? Melville, Hawthorne, Poe wrote riddling allegories about the nature of evil, the haunting of unappeased spirits, the inverted opposition of blackness and whiteness. Toni Morrison has with plainness and grace and terror and judgment solved the riddle and showed us the world which haunted theirs. Brilliant. Uh, and that is of a piece with Toni Morrison's um, lectures, which were collected as a book called Playing in the Dark, which he said, have you ever read this? Yeah. It's sort of this incredible investigation of particularly Ernest Hemingway yeah. saying what defines Hemingway's work and many white writers, Willa Cather as well, is the inability to look at the black element of the society in which they were I think it's living. a moral failing. Mm. I actually think it's a moral failing and an ethical failing and, an, and, and for writers it's an aesthetic failing not to do that. And, you know, this book is about something for young women, which we just don't learn enough, but for young black women, brown women, women of colour, as we are now known or know ourselves as in a whiter world, that you are your own best thing. It is such a powerful sentence. It is such an exact sentence yeah. to say down a lineage of violence that's been perpetrated on the body of the women in, of color you are your own best thing and there's a wholeness to that so it's actually a very hopeful book yeah i think we have tony morrison commenting on your comment <laughs> finding out answers to these incredible questions that it seemed to me had never been put subtly and if they had been they had never the language had not manifested it I wanted the language to be what the question was. I wanted the language to simply hold it. I started my career with the bluest eye of putting the entire plot on the first page. The whole story is there. So you know it. So the reader reads the first page, he knows exactly what happened. And if he turns the page, it's because he wants either to find out how it happened or he loves the language. And you hope for both of those things. I hope for both of those things. Right? 
Right. I mean, uh, we're just going to turn into sort of card playing players, <laughs> quoting, quoting, quoting Tony Morrison. But if you'll allow me, I'd like to read another yeah, panel yeah, from, from the source of self-regard. And this is where she talks about the aesthetics of what she's doing um, so powerfully. She says, I suppose I approach the politics versus art, race versus aesthetics debate initially the way an alchemist would, looking for that combination of ingredients that turns dross into gold. But there is no such formula. So my project became to make the historically raced world inextricable from the artistic view that beholds it, and in doing so, encourage readings that dissect both, which is to say, I claim the right and the range of authorship to interrupt journalistic history with a metaphorical one, to impose on a rhetorical history an imagistic one, to read the world, misread it, write and unwrite it, to enact silence and free speech. In short, to do what all writers aspire to do, I wanted my work to be the work of disabling the art versus politics argument to perform the union of aesthetics and ethics. That is what she does in yeah. Beloved. John, when did you? I'm going to ask you. When did you first read this book? <laughs> I read it. Um, I read it about 20 years ago. I've read a lot of 20th century American male writers, um, particularly white male writers. Absolutely white male writers. Reading Toni Morrison was the Faulkner was the one that I was most interested in because he was. I think he was a modernist, and he was he, what he did with form was so interesting, and he his, his language was, so, but. It was that moment when you realised that here was somebody doing something as well as Faulkner, but just the resonance and the and the the the, the precision of her language. Well, it was exactly what Antonia Byatt was saying. I can't get, go back now and read those writers without Toni Morrison, without Toni Morrison's voice and what Toni Morrison. I mean, she. I, I, that's why for me, I think she she is the the most important writer of of, of the second half of the twentieth century. To write a great modernist novel is, you know, not many people have done it, and, she, and she's she's done it at least three times. Beloved was the one that the one that I read first, and then I went. I read Jazz when it came out, and I've I've read Song of Solomon, but Beloved is still the one that I go back to. I just might read a tiny little bit if I'm allowed to. You know what she can do, and I love, as you know, I'm I'm always interested in how people use nature and that relationship <laughs> with the natural world in, in fiction. This is as good as it, I think it honestly gets in, 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 in fiction. This is after Sethi has, has just given birth to the, the baby that, that we'll later know as, as Denver, with Amy, the white girl, helping her. The baby whimpered and Sethi looked. Twenty inches of cord hung from its belly and it trembled in the cooling evening air. Amy wrapped her skirt around it and the wet, sticky women clambered ashore to see what indeed God had in mind. Great sentence. Spores of blue fern growing in the hollows along the riverbank float toward the water in silver blue lines, hard to see unless you are in or near them, lying right at the river's edge when the sunshots are low and drained. Often they are mistook for insects, but they are seeds in which the whole generation sleeps, confident of a future. And for a moment, it is easy to believe each one has one, will become all of what is contained in the spore, will live out its days as planned. This moment of certainty lasts no longer than that, longer, perhaps, than the spore itself. On a riverbank in the cool of a summer evening, two women struggled under a shower of silvery blue. 
They never expected to see each other again in this world, and at the moment couldn't care less. But there, on a summer night, surrounded by blue fern, they did something together appropriately and well. A patroller passing would have sniggered to see two throwaway people, two lawless outlaws, a slave and a barefoot white woman with unpinned hair, wrapping a ten-minute-old baby in the rags they wore. But no paint roller came and no preacher. The water sucked and swallowed itself beneath them. There was nothing to disturb them at their work, so they did it appropriately and well. That's <laughs> extraordinary descriptions of what sisterhood should be. Yeah. I've ever read. Yeah. Um, uh, it doesn't uh, matter about race. It doesn't matter uh, about background, who's free and who's unfree. Um, and water, spores, generations. Uh, uh, who gets just... to write about nature. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Planning. You know, it, the, the whole that whole thing about having a plan, which is central to the book. I mean, it's everything you want fiction to do, everything you want, you, you hope it can do. Every, that what you were saying about the art politics thing that she was writing about—that that she you can dissolve that into 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 language like this, into, into storytelling like this. I think it's worth making the point as well that when um, Beloved was first published, it was perceived as being an important book. Tony Morrison's best book. Uh, if you look at the reviews at the time, they, they are mostly extremely positive, describe it as a masterpiece. As we pull away from it, though, you, I think you can see it, the effect of this novel. You know, for a classic to be a classic, we can debate what makes classic you know but we're not going to but, but but what's interesting about this is you can see that it has a political and social effect the ripples beyond the literary world you know it takes on um properties and qualities that one would aspire to as a writer who has set herself that project but to watch it go out in the world and change the his, the narrative of the historical view of slavery, which is unquestionably what Beloved has done, yeah. is an amazing social achievement. Yes, it's amazing. <laughs> but it is also, you know, when when you were talking about Faulkner, I was thinking, you know, I haven't read Faulkner actually, to be honest, and it's not it's not something that I'm going to seek out. Perhaps I will eventually, but I would never think she's doing it as well as Faulkner. I would always think. Is this as good as Toni Morrison? Yeah, well, that's the, that's, that's my centre, and that's, right. and yet that's Mor- the centre she makes. But yet Morrison would put herself in that lineage, as if to say, "Why shouldn't I do this?" Yeah. yeah, right. So this is what I mean about her work being a literary project as much as a social project. It's that point uh, Antonia Byatt makes about the, <laughs> you know, rewriting the novels of the the great American novels written by white men in the 19th century, that's quite a thing to take on, to wrestle Melville and win. Well, you're talking to someone who wrote Lear in the... Indeed. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. There's lots of ways in which her um, centering of her self and her the things she wanted to say and the way she sees the world in, in this book inspired me, not just in a sort of... She is a tree in a way, if you like. Her, the tree that certain writers doing certain things, want to do certain things, can take strength from, can shelter from, and the roots that she's that she's put down have, have yielded so much 
This is Tony Morrison talking about the what the starting point for Beloved was. What was the seed of Beloved? The question was, who is the Beloved? Who is the person who lives inside us that is the one you can trust, who is the best thing that you are? And in that instant, for that segment, because I had planned several books around that theme, it was the effort of a woman to love her children, to raise her children, to be responsible for her children. And the fact that it was during slavery made all of those things impossible for her. And there was this interesting historical incident, you know, the Margaret Garner story, right. in which that actually happened. There was a great deal of infanticide in order to prevent her from living a life she believed would be intolerable. But that's her claim, you know, kind of a control that she was trying to exercise in order to be simply a mother and that the best thing she was was this lovely child or these children. And of course, that set her on a very complicated, self-destructive journey. But the question was still there. And the answer, or at least the other question that's delivered is when somebody asks her or tells her, no, no, you are your best thing. You are. Which is what you were saying, Priscilla. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, but when I listen to that, I'm actually thinking about something else which I have mulled over in the last two or three years. And it's interesting to me that this book has a quote from Margaret Atwood on the back mm. because the things that happen to these women, these black women who have been enslaved, are, are true facts that women's babies were taken away from them, that they were used as ways of making families um they didn't have a say in how they were to bring up their children it absolutely haunts setha and that is why she is so determined to do what she does so no one else will raise her children i'd like to say something if i may about um so when we do a backlisted i normally try and read or reread the book that we're talking about but i also uh, read at least one other book by the author because you know because i can i have this opportunity <laughs> we have the opportunities to just steep ourselves for a fortnight in, in a writer's work. So I read The Bluest Eye for the first time. I read Song of Solomon and Sula as well. Yeah. And I read the, the Bluest Eye for the first time. I almost wish we were talking about the bluest eye. <laughs> I'm glad we're talking about Beloved because it's fantastic and we're and it's so rich for discussion. But what's incredible about w- watching how Morrison develops as a novelist is and she doesn't publish till she's 39 40 yeah she'd worked in publishing so she'd worked, she'd worked in publishing been an editor yeah she was in the office um is there's something really visceral about the bluest eye we talked about Gail Jones uh, and her novel Corregidora on backlisted last year Sarah Churchill, Tony Morrison, edited Corregidora. They're different novels, but they have a similar kind of energy about them, a need to be born, mm. actually. If The Bluest Eye was published on its own and she'd never have done anything else, it would still be a really significant book. The difference in craft between The Bluest Eye, which is almost like a kind of pent-up, like vomiting of... That's something that needed to be said. 
by the time you get to Beloved, she's become this incredibly sophisticated narrative storyteller. I'd just like to get on the record the opening paragraph of The Bluest Eye because as a bit of prose, it's, it's hard to beat. This is how this book starts. Nuns go by as quiet as lust. And that, <laughs> I don't even need to read the rest of the paragraph, right? But anyway, nuns go by as quiet as lust and drunken men with sober eyes sing in the lobby of the Greek hotel. Rosemary Villanucci, our next-door friend who lives above her father's cafe, sits in a 1939 Buick eating bread and butter. She rolls down the window to tell my sister Frieda and me that we can't come in. We stare at her, wanting her bread, but more than that, wanting to poke the arrogance out of her eyes and smash the pride of ownership that curls her chewing mouth. When she comes out of the car, we will beat her up make red marks on her white skin, and she will cry and ask us, do we want her to pull her pants down? We will say no. We don't know what we should feel or do if she does, but whenever she asks us, we know she is offering us something precious and that our own pride must be asserted by refusing to accept. And that's just the, the opening of the book, right? A book, incidentally, that still appears every year in the top 10 lists of books or novels that schools in the United States of America are trying to ban. Bad, yeah. Well, yeah. because there is something so subversive about a project of love yeah. like this. And I feel like all of her work is this project to make us heal wounds, to make us be honest about our interconnectedness and our histories. It is such a subversive project to say this at the heart is a story about love, but at first I'm going to make you feel pain yeah. and the pain that you're responsible for in your own society and in yourself. We have a clip here. I think this is the last one. This is clip number five. Now, this is quite long, but stick with it, everyone. Toni Morrison has just been asked, you've won the Nobel Prize for Fiction. Do you still encounter racism and the issues of race in your life? Yes, I do, Charlie, but let me tell you, that's the wrong question. Okay, what's the right question? How do you feel? Not you, Charlie Rose, right. but don't you understand that the people who do this thing, who practice racism, right. are bereft. There is something distorted about the psyche. It's a huge waste and it's a corruption and a distortion. It's like it's a profound neurosis that nobody examines for what it is. It feels crazy. It is crazy. And it leaves, it has just as much of a deleterious effect on white people and possibly equal as it does black people. I always knew that I had the moral high ground all my life. I always thought those people who said I couldn't come in the drugstore and I had to sit in this funny place, I couldn't you go in the park. You superior to them I from did. day one. And I thought they knew that I knew that they were inferior to me, morally. I always thought that. And my parents always thought that. But if, if the racist white person, I don't mean the person who is examining his consciousness and so on, doesn't understand 
that he or she is also a race. It's also constructed. It's also made. And it also has some kind of serviceability. But when you take it away, I take your race away. And there you are, all strung out. And all you've got is your little self. And what is that? What are you without racism? Are you any good? Are you still strong? Are you still smart? you still like yourself? I mean, these are the questions. It's, part of it is, yes, the victim. How terrible it has been for black yeah, people. Like that. I'm not a victim. I refuse to be one. If you can only be tall because somebody's on their knees, then you have a serious problem. And my feeling is white people have a very, very serious problem. And they should start thinking about what they can do about it. Take me out of it. Then give white people some free advice. <laughs> They're all in my books. <laughs> <laughs> this question of who is who, who thinks of themselves as superior and why, mm. how this these works undermine that security and show it up to be this fragile veneer that is so easily broken by a confidence yeah. of selfhood, of equality of owning a space because you can and you should. That is something that it's, you, you, if we could only teach our young people that if, if I had had that and I got it from these books, um, you know, it wasn't lost on me that everywhere I went, the people who were brown were doing the serving and the people who were teaching were doing were the white ones or the, the ones on television or all of those things. And what does that do to your sense of self in a world? How do we begin to understand that if you're thinking you're superior, someone else is thinking that you're not. If someone says to me, oh, you know, you're the, you're the token person here and that does happen to me, I think, okay, that means you are too. Yeah. <laughs> it's as simple as that you mm. simply can't have a token person without everyone else there being a token person mm. too mm. or being there because of their race and their identity it simply doesn't infect me it's like because at the end of the day i have language can i ask a question of both of you do you think I've got to get this right. We feel, don't we, that Toni Morrison articulates something that had needed to be articulated for a long time. How much of that is her era being channeled through her and how much is her and her personality? Do you mean era, sort of when she was writing these books? The I kind do of think there's a, certainly when I read Song of Solomon, that felt like a novel from the 1970s. It has a certain kind of magical yeah. realist thing going on, which feels of its era in a way that Beloved doesn't, I have to say. Um, but I'm wondering also, she comes up through the kind of the, the era of the mid to late 60s, uh, civil unrest in the states she's very she she has a great success with an amazing book called the black book in 1974 which she edited which is a collection of clippings and writings to do with the 
identity of black Americans up to that point. And I, I'm wondering how much of her, her is um, her success, success is not her, her importance is as a product of that era and how much is of her personality, her force of personality. Well, it takes an enormous amount of strength to be the person that people want to support. Yeah. I mean, who is who who is deciding what is success yeah. and what is significant? That is the rot that she's trying to always yeah. break. Yeah. That is the kind of disease that she's always trying to show itself to itself. Because if your society is trained to believe that only this kind of writing fits in this kind of literary category of high mm. art, mm then, you know, and you have to be this incredibly strong person to say, actually, I'm doing my thing and you can take it or leave it. The centre will come to me. And have that confidence in, in your own voice and your own work and your own right to do what you're doing. Like you said, she started writing, you know, 3940. So it took a long time for her to to begin to put her work into the world and she was already working in publishing. She she says a brilliant thing um, somewhere about how the extent to which she's channeling jazz. She's channeling jazz both in the, the musicality of the prose, she says, but also how jazz is an art form that carries American blackness within it, even though there's good jazz in Japan, she says. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's what she wants... Yeah. her writing and by extension black american writing to be and so she does it matter yeah. what a jazz critic who is from not that background or even is from that background but is thinking in different ways thinks of the jazz does it really matter no she says it doesn't she she sort of says because it carries it has not been compromised right i came back to this book and and the other books by Toni Morrison that I've read to, before this episode, thinking it's so it's such a pleasant change on backlisted to have something that is so undeniably great <laughs> that it hasn't been neglected. <laughs> right? Yeah. Do you know what? I, no, I mean we we love yeah, the books that we true. talk about, but but this is this is you know it's the force of this is couldn't be kept back right it's just right that's true but i think you know what what the project of her work is trying to say is that we she like again with these reversals and underminings that are in the book she, she says and it chimes through the book this is not a story to pass on yeah. because she wants the story to be passed on so everything has to be taken in double double yeah, yeah yeah and she's also making a river and she's also making a tree and she's also making a world and that should be populated by writers who are doing similar things not just one tony morrison who mm, is yeah. the amazing tony morrison mm -hmm, she mm -hmm. wants us to populate this world with the stories that have not been told that have not been heard she's saying don't shut the door on these voices again and that's where we must leave it Wiser, chastened, reminded of the importance of great art. <laughs> full of questions. Schools. <laughs> full of questions. Deep and heartfelt thanks to Preeti for choosing such a great book. To the Keeper of Sounds, Nikki Birch, and to Unbound, our host and patron. You can download all 94 of our shows, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website, backlisted.fm, and you can contact us on Twitter, 
Facebook and Boundless. And before you do that, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. It makes us happy. And happiness is something to cling to. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't write that, (laughs) but I sold it. (laughs) You sold it very well. Uh, Thank you for listening. We'll be back in a fortnight. Yay! Amazing! Really good episode. Absolutely brilliant. You feel all right? I'm good, yeah, I'll have that wine now. (laughs) (laughs) You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.